That's right. We're starting a new series called The Power of Habit. And we're starting it over, all over again. We're just going to keep doing it we're gonna, until we get in the habit of it. We're just going to... So there's this, this idea that there are keystone habits. Researchers have, have discovered that in, in studying people's habits, that there are certain keystone habits. Have you heard of this? Keystone habit? So if you, if you make your bed every day, that's, that's kind of a keystone habit that, that, uh, that causes you know, a domino effect in a good way. That you've checked one box, you're probably the kind of person who's then, if you're making your bed, that's a keystone habit that will uh, result in a chain reaction of, of being about uh, an intentional approach to your day. Keystone habit. Families, families that have regular dinner times together, regular meals. It doesn't mean every evening, but it means that there's a pattern of, of having dinner together, that there's, there's a certain keystone effect, that a lot of other things fall into place just because of those keystone habits. Can, can, can your, your heart and soul have habits as well? Can you have habits of the heart? Well, obviously, I think, I think you can, and, and that there are certain keystone habits of the heart that cause a chain reaction for, for spiritual growth and for a sense of, of orderliness of your heart, soul, and mind. And so we're going to be looking at these habits over the next few weeks. The way that we're going to have habits, right? We, we make our habits, right? We make our habits, and then our habits make us. We make our habits, and then our habits make us. And so let's take a look at these habits, these habits of the heart that, that bring disorder or order to the rest of your life, these keystone habits. There, there was a, um, there, there was a, a, a research study, a study of, of a fellow who, because of his brain injury, taught us a lot about habits. They called him EP to protect his identity while he was alive. He's no longer alive. His name is Eugene Pauly, and he had a, a brain injury. But there were certain things he could still do. Now, one of the things that, that was affected was his short-term memory. So in a very affectionate way, people, people related to him very well. And it was, it was very uh, affectionate the way he, he was kind of like, in, in a lot of ways, he was kind of like Dory in, the, uh, in, in that movie uh, Finding Nemo. You know, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. He, 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 was, he would ask the same question over and over and over again. And people learned to have a good, his family learned to have a great sense of humor about it. He could not map out, he could not draw you a picture or a map of his house. But he could stand at the stove, fix some eggs, and just automatically open the cupboard and pull out the salt. He, he couldn't tell you what street he lived on, but he could go out and he could go down the street and he could pick up, collect some pine cones, and several hours later, find his way back home. 
Think about how powerful habits are. When, when, if, if those of you who can drive, you know, if you, if you, if you get in the car and you know, you just think about every day pulling out of your driver, pulling out of your garage, let's say, and all within a matter of thirty seconds, you've found the right key, you've stuck it in there, you've put your foot on the pedal, you've maybe even adjusted the radio, you've put it into reverse, you've checked the left side, right side mirror, you've, you're pulling back, you're, you're hitting the right, the, the, the right pedal, you're, you're swinging just in time, and all the while you're thinking, did I remember my phone? Right? You don't even think about it. I see what, what, what we're going to learn from looking at this episode between David and Saul in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 24. We're going to see that there's certain, there's certain habits of the heart that are ingrained in David's life. And what, when he's squeezed, you know, like an orange, when he's squeezed, what comes out of his life, the habits that come out of his life, is not sour, it's sweet. Because he has developed certain, a certain automated response to difficulty. And it really comes down to the habit of forgiving. Forgiving is one of those keystone habits. Let's take a look. At the word of God... 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 13. When Saul returned from following the, the Philistines, I say it that way because the other way it sounds too much like my name. The Philistines, say it that way, Philistines. Because they're the bad guys. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Okay, so he's, he's taking his best men to pursue David to kill him, right? Okay. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. I'm, not, I'm just reading this, okay? I'm not making this up. It's... Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and after Saul. And he said, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. 
And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, bless this word now. Not only to our lips, but to our lives, that we may walk about at liberty, for we have sought your precepts. In Jesus' name, amen. Every one of us probably has somebody you have to forgive, or maybe you're in the process still of forgiving. Why forgive? Why forgive? I've already talked about the fact that forgiveness is one of these habits of the heart, a keystone habit. And when you you develop that habit, a lot of other things just fall naturally into place. But at an emotional level, at a gut level, why should we forgive when people don't deserve it? Why should we forgive? It's good to be reminded of this probably every six months, maybe, maybe three months, maybe every week. I don't know. It, it, it's good to be reminded that we need to be in the habit and the practice of forgiveness. Why should we forgive? Let's take a look at why should, we, should, we, we should forgive. Now Lincoln said this, President Lincoln said, that everyone over the age of 40 is responsible for his face. As I approach 40, I think about that a lot more. Everyone over the age of 40. So why forgive? The habits of our heart, the place where we dwell, the way we deal with difficulty, conflict, and difficult people, it will come out in your life. And it's going to come out in one of three ways. The first two ways, you really don't want it to come out this way. All right, So let's look at those, the two ways that you don't want to deal with difficulty and difficult people. Right? Let's take a look at it. First is shame. Shame. That's, that's, that's our first natural human response to difficulty and to difficult people. Rather than forgiving, we go inward. We feel responsible. We take on responsibility that doesn't belong to us. We take on the full weight of the responsibility. We feel shame. Now, the image for this is a turtle, okay? So you can be a turtle, and the next one's going to be a skunk. So hang on, skunk people. It's coming. But the first one is shame, which is to be a turtle. And this is the way it looks. Something happens. There's some kind of rub or conflict between you and somebody else. Or something happens where, you know, you feel embarrassed or responsible. And you go inward with it. 
And you take it on, you take on the full weight of it, and you feel, you feel ashamed. And then you hide, so you hide. You don't want people to see it. You feel like everything's all out there for everyone to see, all of your nakedness, all of your shame. And so you, you go inward with it. And, and then what does the world see? What, what kind of turtle shell do they see? They see an imposter. An imposter. That's what they see. It's how Brennan Manning, Manning puts it. It's, it's our fear that we're not going to be enough, not blank enough, however you want to put it. I'm not tall enough, thin enough, mature enough, good enough, whatever it is. It's the fear that we're not enough. And something triggers that fear, and what do we do? We go inward with it, and we show the world our shell, the imposter. This is how Bren Manning puts it. He says, in a futile attempt to erase our, erase our past or whatever we're embarrassed of, we deprive the community of our healing gift. Did you follow that? Think about that again. Let me read that again. In a futile attempt to erase what's happened, right? You go into your shell. We deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light to others. To live by grace, on the other hand, means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. While the imposter draws his identity from past achievements, and the adulation of others, the true self claims identity in its belovedness. Let me read that one more time, all right? While the imposter, the turtle shell, the, the imposter draws his identity from past achievements and the adulation of others, the true self claims identity in its belovedness. You know the difference between guilt and shame? This isn't, I'm not talking about guilt. Guilt is not the same thing as shame. Guilt is good. Guilt, guilt should take us somewhere. It should take us to the foot of the cross, and that, that's where we leave guilt. But guilt is different from shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. You see the difference? Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. And so we go in. We go behind the imposter, that turtle shell. David lived by one simple axiom. My grace is sufficient for you. How do I know this? Well, because... He was in the habit of forgiving. He was forgiving even to the point of making himself vulnerable. He came out of his shell. He walked out of the cave. He bows down to Saul, and he says, look, I'm, I'm in your hands, but I just want you to know this is who I am. I'm not carrying any concealed weapons. In fact, I'm proving to you today that I, I am not the person that you are accusing me 
to be. See, that's, that's often what happens. What, what happens is, it, it, well, actually, that's not what, what often happens. What often happens is, is somebody does something to someone else, and then they react in the same way. And then the first person feels justified for their misdeed. Did you follow that? See, person A does something or accuses somebody of something. They do something. To person B and person B reacts in the same way and then person A feels justified in what they had done but David David doesn't respond fighting fire with fire he, he, he bows down his, his, his identity is in his belovedness His actions don't hinge upon Saul's actions. What, what, what David does is totally independent of Saul. Saul's the first king of Israel. Saul is the one who stands head and shoulders above everybody else. He looks like a king. He looks like the guy who's supposed to be in charge. But is he behaving nobly? No. And here comes David. And in his vulnerability, he shows his great dignity and nobility. Brene Brown talks a lot about fear and shame. And, and, and she, in one of her TED Talks, she, she asks people, she says, you know, when you feel vulnerable, when, when, you, when you're showing sort of a sense of tenderness and vulnerability, do you, don't you feel weak? And everybody raises their hands, thousands of people in the audience. They, they raise their hand. They say, yeah, we feel weak. And then she asks them, she says, now, you've been watching people be very vulnerable in these last couple of days of these TED Talks. And when they've been vulnerable, did they look weak to you? And they said, no. What, what is it that you see when people are real, they come out of their shell? You see courage. That's what we see. We see courage. We admire it in other people. We think, oh, that's good for you. That's great. I wish I could do that. Right? We admire it. But then when it comes to doing it, ah, oh, we think we have to wait for the fear to go away. Well, it's not going to go away. Courage to step out of that shell and to respond with a sense of Vulnerability, that's, that's what you see David doing. Why can David do that? Because his confidence in, is in an identity that is independent of what's going on around him. His confidence is in the fact that maybe he makes mistakes, but he is not a mistake. He's beloved. He's beloved. And so he's able to extend grace and forgiveness to Saul. In fact, you can even see it in verse 5, a sense of sorrow and compassion. He says, afterward, David's heart struck him. After he cuts off, even cuts off this part of the robe, you know, you can think of when, when the woman who, uh, who, was, who had hemophilia in the, in the New Testament, she had the, the problem of, 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 just, of just bleeding, and, and, and she reaches out just to touch the hem, maybe the, one of the tassels on 
the outer garment of Jesus, and Jesus feels the power go out of him. You see how important it is, how symbolic and representative of the man it is. And so, so David cuts off part of Saul's robe, and even in sparing his life, he still feels a sense of compassion for Saul. It's come to this. It's almost like David is saying to himself, it's come to this. How sad. But I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to return evil for evil. Why? Because David knows he's beloved. That's why he's called a man after God's own heart. Not because he's perfect, not because he's super Christian. Right? Super Jew. All right, don't, don't, don't give me a hard time, all right? It's because he's beloved. His identity is independent. It's completely dependent upon God alone. And so we do the skunk, we do the, uh, we do the, the turtle thing. We, we put out a shell, an imposter for everybody to see, or we're beloved. And here's the other response that we have to difficult people and to difficulty. It's the skunk response. It's not shame, but blame. Whereas the turtle goes inward, right, and puts the shell, the skunk sprays. Right? The skunk stinks up the other just sprays and makes the other person just stink. Right? It puts the blame on the other person. You know, the reason why we blame other people, even if they have some fault, the reason why we do this, we do this to try to take the pain that we have or the emotion that we don't like, the negativity that, that, that's, that's in us, and we try to put it on the other person. This is why we do it. We spray the other person so that they smell, right? We blame them in order to discharge our pain and minimize it in ourselves. Here's the problem. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. We think it works. It may give you a momentary flash of satisfaction, like you're balancing accounts, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Because what ha- ends up happening is you get drawn down. Your dignity and, and worth are, are not found in that power play. You know, see, it's, it's a little like this. Parents that know of young children, you know, when you say you do your homework and they say no, and you say yes, no, yes, no, no. That doesn't work, right? You've now gotten drawn down into a power play and, and your level is on the level of your child. And it doesn't work. Because what you, what, what you need is for that child to take responsibility. But what you're doing is you're trying to make the child responsible. You can't make them responsible. You can only invite them to be responsible. You invite them by saying, okay, you, here are your choices. You can be responsible or you can hang upside down with duct tape for about you know, uh, however many minutes. No, you never, never want to do that. Tr- trust me, it's not a good idea. <laughs> duct tape. Rubber mallets, nine-volt batteries. It doesn't work. You just have to give them choices, choices between the red pajamas or the blue pajamas, doing the homework or not having that, that thing that they wanted to have. And so you're, you're handing responsibility back to them. When we blame somebody, what we're doing is we're getting down on their level and we're trying to make them responsible. And it doesn't work. In the same way you're trying to argue with, with a child 
You're trying to argue with somebody who doesn't want to be responsible. What does David do? Look back at, at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord judge between me and you. It's like David's saying, David's saying, I don't, I don't have to be in charge of this. I don't have to be in charge of your responsibility. Do you see the freedom there? It's incredible. And that's what forgiveness does. It says, I'm going to hand you back to you so you can deal with you. You see, back to the parenting analogy. You, you want your child to deal with himself. You don't want him to deal with you, right? If he's dealing with you, he's not doing his homework, right? If he's arguing with you, he's already won. You want your child to deal with himself, herself. And so too with difficult people in difficult situations. When we blame them, we're just spraying them. And we think that, that we've accomplished something. But now they're dealing with us instead of dealing with themselves. And David hands Saul back over to Saul by handing him back over to God. And that's what forgiveness does. It hands the person their responsibility. It lets them be in charge of it. It, 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 it lets go of those things that you don't want to walk around with life. And so forgiveness is the courage to be honest with what you need. It doesn't mean that you're not being honest. It doesn't mean you're ignoring. So this is, this is, these are the, the primary objections when, whenever I talk about forgiveness. I, I put myself in your position. I think forgiveness, you know, that person doesn't deserve it. And so I hope you're not saying these three things. I'm not. I'm not saying that it's a removal of consequences. It's not a removal of consequences. I forgive you. You broke the window. You, baseball went through the window. I forgive you. But you're still going to clean up the mess. And, and maybe you're going to have to, you know, Pay for it with your paper route. But I forgive you. I'm not angry with you. It's not a removal of consequences. It, it's not instant trust. Forgiveness is not instant trust. It doesn't say, okay, well, now that, that uh, I've forgiven you, now we're big buddies again and everything's just back the way it was. No, sometimes you, you're wiser. And trust needs to be earned back. It's... Nor is it always reconciliation. Forgiveness is not always reconciliation. Sometimes forgiveness is a one-way street, right? You're inviting the other person to come back and make it a two-way street, but they might, may not be responsible. They may not be capable of it. That's really hard. When you're forgiving somebody and you realize this person just isn't capable of it. There's too much that they're dealing with, and they just can't do it. But forgiveness still can release you from carrying that person around. The former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, said this. After he was kept in prison unjustly for 27 years, 27 years, he said, as I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I did not leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I would still be in prison. That's why Jesus says 70 times 7. That's why you see David handing Saul back to God. I think when I think of this, I think when, when I accumulate people in my life that have done, done me wrong. When you accumulate people, it's like you're carrying them. 
And I, I think of this image from Walden. This is Thoreau. He, he talks about people being so bogged down in materialism, but let's apply it to your life and your situation here with, with the habits of your heart. He says this, How many a poor immortal soul have I met well nigh crushed and smothered under its load, creeping down the road of life, pushing before it a barn 75 feet by 40. It's mowing its pasture, its woodlot, the portionless who struggle with no such unnecessary inherited encumbrances find it a labor enough to subdue and cultivate a few cubic feet of flesh. Can you see the image? You see what happens when you and I forgive the big thing. Sometimes it's like you, you have, the 70 times seven is like there's one big thing back there and I have to do it again. I've woken up again. I've been reminded of that, that big thing back there in the past. 70 times seven. I'm gonna forgive again even though I forgave yesterday. And you get into the habit. You help yourself get to the place. And then there's going to be a day when you wake up and you no longer have to carry that person. What are you carrying? What's your natural reaction to difficulty and difficult people? Is it, is it shame to go inside? Is it blame to spray the other person and try to make them responsible? Or is it to discharge that responsibility that doesn't belong to you. And the only way that you can, and that is to let that person, let them go, to place them before the Lord, and to forgive. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have demonstrated to us the power of forgiveness and that you've made it possible for us to forgive because you've given us the experience of forgiveness. May we, in the same way that David was beloved, may we walk around identifying as people who are loved by you so that when we face those difficulties, Lord, we may respond in the same way that you've responded to us. In Jesus' name, amen.